0: So we're gonna embark on a slightly new endeavor now. Um, We're gonna present some cases, and I'm not trying to stump. I'm just trying to elicit different opinions. Um, We'll certainly wanna hear questions about the cases. Um, We can actually have the questions actually after each individual case, um, if there's anything more specific that wasn't covered uh, by these cases. So case number one, Mr. B, okay, so this was, uh, all right, so the automation didn't work. But Mrs. B uh, is a 55-year-old woman with no significant medical history, diagnosed with CLL five years earlier. Her CLL has followed a slowly progressive course and now requires treatment because of anemia, hemoglobin equal to 10.2 grams per deciliter, and thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of 85,000 per microliter. Physical exam demonstrates mild cervical adenopathy, mild cervical and axillary adenopathy and no splenomegaly. Her prognostic markers include CD38 being positive, ZAP70 positive, unmutated IGHV, and a deletion of 11q. NGS panel was significant only for a mutation of SF3B1. So I'd like to open up to the panel Is there any additional information you require prior to making a treatment recommendation? Dr. Brown?
1: So I would probably get a CT scan in this patient, particularly because of the deletion 11Q. Sometimes they do have central large adenopathy, which is something that I like to monitor during response or know about.
0: What about a bone marrow biopsy?
1: I do generally try to do those prior to treatment, mostly in case there are issues that develop during the treatment so that I have a comparison. But I don't always, and I don't really see, especially if you have a long history with this patient where you're seeing slow but steady development of the anemia and thrombocytopenia, it doesn't sound to me like this patient really absolutely needs one, but I do tend to do it unless there's a lot of objection.
0: Dr. K., additional uh, information that you would want prior to making a treatment recommendation?
2: I think uh, I, I agree with uh, what Jennifer said. I, I, I usually do get a bone marrow biopsy, even if patients aren't going in clinical trials, more because I'm thinking that it, if I have a chance to get a complete response, uh, I'd like to document what the bone marrow was initially. But um, other than that, I think I would uh,
3: I'd be happy with uh, what's being done.
0: All right. Dr. Rye?
3: <clears throat> Who's the created this patient? <laughs> Is, I don't know <laughs> is very smart because this sounds like a synthetic patient because young relatively young age seemingly without any clear cut b symptoms but evidence of slowly progressing disease and all the markers which, if we used a knee-jerk reflex action, indicate therapeutic intervention. Zap seventy positive, unmutated, thirty-eight positive, SF three B one positive, and seemingly bulky disease with eleven Q So everything fits for a relatively younger age CLL patient, slowly moving to her death. But today, on the basis of these, would you have clear-cut indication for therapeutic intervention? If you did... You would fail in my book because this is you are doing a knee jerk reflex. This person should be closely watched, except that she will come to need some intervention. But would it be soon, like within a year or later, is unpredictable from this. Story.
0: So, Dr. Rai, what would you, what would serve your, or what would actually be your marker of the patient requiring therapy?
3: Well, the fact is that by not mentioning in this detailed report that she has 17P deletion or anything else, I would consider starting either. Brutinib, one of these days, or venetoclax, obinutuzumab, but at this time, I will continue to watch.
0: So, what would be the the change that you would look for that would prompt treatment initiation?
3: The woman starts to feel bad, you know, night sweats, weight loss, infections, weakness. Along with these symptoms,
2: can I just say for the record I did not recommend therapy?
0: We haven't gotten there yet, but okay.
4: I just want to Dr. say for the K? record Dr. <laughs> Ryan like sitting right next
2: to me, I did not recommend therapy.
3: So, so
4: Dr. Davids, what's what are your <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly agree with everything that's been said. And in terms of getting additional information, I guess one thing that might help me would be to have some prior laboratory values so I can see what the chronicity is of, of the anemia and the platelet count. Have you know, they sort of been in this range for a while and the patient's feeling okay? It would make me feel a little more comfortable. If they've been steadily trending down you know, month by month and the patient has these higher-risk markers, doesn't have TP53 dysfunction but has unmutated IGHV and 11Q, You know, then I might want to get some additional information to help me decide on treatment. So, as Dr. Brown said, a a CT scan in a patient like this might reveal really bulky lymphadenopathy and perhaps impending hydronephrosis or something like this. Uh, You know, a bone marrow biopsy can give us a sense for, you know, how involved the marrow is. And, you know, if you have a very packed marrow and bulky nodes and higher risk markers in a patient who's minimally symptomatic, I might still move forward with treatment in that context. So the bone marrow biopsy would impact upon your initiation of treatment? It's one of the factors, I think. Yeah, Dr. K. In, in the exactly. setting of cytopenia.
2: I, I agree. That, those are really good points. Uh, I just wanted, I, I neglected to say, omitted something that's very important, and that is that uh, we need to rule out that she does not have some autoimmune cytopenia. And maybe maybe that is something that you were looking for. And we should have said, and I apologize.
0: I wasn't looking for anything. <laughs> oh, okay, never mind. All right. So uh, the patient actually did have a progressively slow course, and um, based upon the historical counts, the bone marrow biopsy did confirm that this was likely non-immune-mated cytopenias. Um, so
4: Dr. David, Davids what would you be your current treatment recommendation? So this is an area that's obviously evolved a lot in the last year to two years. Uh, You know, a couple years ago, this is a patient I probably would have thought about FCR for. Uh, She's 55 years old and otherwise healthy and fit. Uh, So I think... Unmuted. So I think FCR is... Still a consideration, but I think in light of the data that we saw this morning from the, from the ECOG 1912 study, uh, we certainly would expect uh, an improvement with an ibrutinib-based regimen. Uh, you know, We don't know abrutinib rituximab versus ibrutinib in the young population, but I think we can pretty safely extrapolate from the Alliance study that the rituximab is unlikely to add durability to this. So this is a patient where I think ibrutinib could be a great option. Uh, but I would also discuss venetoclax with obinutuzumab. Now, as you, as you know, the CLL14 study looked at comorbid patients who are typically a bit older, and so you know whether that data set completely applies here, I'm uh, not so sure, but I think particularly for young patients, the idea of time-limited therapy can be very appealing, and I have no reason to believe that the data in that older population or a comorbid population should not apply here. So I would kind of present both of those options to the patient. I would mention chemoimmunotherapy, but probably try to steer the patient away from it. Dr. Brown?
1: Right. I agree with that. I think the deletion 11Q drives... Is the strongest factor in this patient driving toward the novel agents away from CIT even more than unmutated IGHV? Because we know that they have not as poor outcome as 17P, but still a relatively poor outcome with chemoimmunotherapy. I do like the idea of time-limited therapy for a patient this young, but would just have a very detailed discussion with the patient about the venetoclax versus BTK inhibitor options.
0: Dr. K.
2: I forgot to ask for a P53 mutation.
0: Did uh, you say no that? mutation present. NGS panel. No panels. NGS panel. Okay.
2: Yeah, I I like the idea of time limited therapy too. Uh, this is a fit person, no significant medical history. The unmutated ITHV is a is a bit of a negative marker, but um, I certainly if there isn't a clinical trial, that's reasonable for this person. Uh, I would think that a careful discussion with that individual about time limited, even with the risk of AML and MDS. And I've had some patients say, I, I, I just want them. So
0: when you say time limited, you mean FCR? I'm sorry, Nine. yeah, Nine. CIT,
2: yeah, four and a half months and I'm done And versus years and years on um, other therapies. All
0: right, Dr. Rye, anything to add?
3: No.
1: Okay. <laughs> I would probably offer this patient our of FCR regimen off trial also. That's how I would or for the time-limited
3: chemoimmunotherapy option. I I, I want to disagree. uh, First, I said no. But uh, I think that there are convincing data from MD Anderson and from Germany that unmutated women would not have an advantage with FCR or chemoimmunotherapy. In my mind, this is a no-no for FCR, BR, anything. I think the, the best approach will be to obinutuzumab plus venetoclax. Limited time, one year.
0: So let me ask you, what would impact upon the decision of offering this person um, Vinadiclaxabinituzumab as a limited uh, treatment duration versus continuous treatment with the BTK inhibitor?
3: Well, the, the high incidence of MDR negativity in this kind of a person is very strong evidence that A, financially it is better. Clinically beneficial-wise, it is better. The only negative part is that this is a relatively new combination and the duration of follow-up is relatively short, which FCR people in mutated people have the advantage. That is minimum of 13 years post-FCR complete remission, but still I think that this lady will have plenty of other opportunities should one-year treatment with venetoclax and obinutuzumab seem to be short-lived. Dr. Brown?
1: Right. So I like the venetoclax MAP option, but I do think one other piece of information we don't have <laughs> might push more toward a BTK inhibitor. If she turned out to have an 11-centimeter mass on her abdominal CT that was managed to be asymptomatic, bulky adenopathy is associated with a lower CR rate with venetoclax, and so I think that that might push more toward BTK inhibitors that work better in nodal disease.
0: All right. I thank you all. So let's move on to the second case. Uh, Mrs. B is now a 65-year-old woman. Everything else is still the same. Uh, Dr. Davids?
4: So, you know, 65 is kind of right on the borderline of these, da- these large data sets that we've just gotten from I we'll Make her there. 70. <laughs> okay, so 70, now I'm thinking more in the, in the frame of mind of the Alliance study and whether I would consider bendamustine and, and rituximab for this patient. Um, and, you know, I think here... <laughs> It's a little bit different in the sense that in the Alliance study there was no overall survival benefit even in the unmutated IGHV patients. So I, you know, I think people could make the case that even for an unmutated patient you could start with BR and then use a brutinib afterwards and the survival of the patient is is not likely to be different. You know, that's with relatively short follow-up. So, you know, personally, this is, again, a situation where I try to steer the patient more toward a novel agent-based approach, especially in light of the 11Q and the unmutated IGHV. Uh, and, again, I think here we have the choice between ibrutinib or venetoclaxobinutuzumab. I'm a little more comfortable recommending venetoclaxobinutuzumab here <coughs> just because the patient seems more like the patient on the CLL14 trial. Um, but I think either would be a good option.
0: Dr. K, Yeah, I,
2: I, at 70 years, it's 70 now, right? No. Yes, 70, years. 70 years, We're now dealing with uh, increased rates, I believe, of uh, potentially of hypertension and uh, arrhythmias. And I would um, probably not be loving uh, the option of CIT for this person either. And I do like the doublet combination. If there's no clinical trial uh, that's available that's advancing our knowledge, I think that's reasonable. Um, I, um, so I think um, ibrutinib versus VO... I don't know. I think those are all good options.
0: Dr. Rye?
3: I think that uh, whatever has been said is right, but it is a little confusing. Mm-hmm. Do you say that this woman, in addition to CLL, has Waldenstrom?
0: No, no that was a, that was a mistake. mistake in the slides.
3: That was a mistake.
0: That was the, the the wrong. So she should
3: have a different name. <laughs> no, this
0: is the first case patient with just now seventy years of age.
3: Doing it to oh, me. I see. Oh, I see.
0: Would that impact upon your decision? Okay. Oh. You Confused
3: me too. Oh, okay.
1: yes, so, um, well, FCR is definitely out, and uh, you know, especially with the 11q deletion, I think a BTK inhibitor or venetoclax, a the older the patient, the more I lean a little bit more toward trying to get a calibrutinib over a brutinib based on the toxicity profiles and the cardiac tox. Yeah. So
3: and you think, I will
1: take issue with, the, with believing there's a real overall survival benefit in the ECOG trial based on four patients versus one. Anyway.
0: So, uh, do you think there's a significant difference in the cardiac toxicities between a calibrutinib and a brutinib? You yeah.
1: are saying it was different. Jen? Do you think
0: there's a significant difference in cardiac toxicities between acalabrutinib and ibrutinib?
1: That's certainly been my clinical experience. We don't have a lot of data. We have the, a pooled series of about six to 700 patients, which did have a several percent AFib rate. And now we have a randomized trial presented last June where there were about eight cases of AFib on the Acala arm versus five on the control arm. It's hard to say too much about that. We're about to get a lot more randomized data at ASH but my personal experience has certainly been that there's less cardiac toxicity
3: i agree i think that the numbers with the cal are smaller but more than anecdotally the relative incidence of afib and bleeding are somewhat less but no hard head to head comparison data are yet available
4: yeah, I think we all have our clinical experience, which has, has been similar with, with acalabrutinib, but this is a unique situation where we actually will have head-to-head data coming along uh, with, with certain caveats. You know, it's a, a study that this is I'm referring to the Elevate RR study. Uh, it was not powered around safety endpoints. It was a power, powered around a non-inferiority endpoint of PFS. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it will be a useful comparison. Any, uh, well, and we'll at least have
1: randomized data against CIT more for a calib. well before we get the randomized data versus abrutinib. Right,
0: right. Uh, any comments on zanabrutinib and its uh, likely side effect profile?
3: Well, Xan is supposed to be slightly less expensive and probably as effective as other BTKs, but low number of pe- people. Treated. They say there are more people in China treated with that. All
0: right. So, in a, a one phrase answer, I want to hear um, ibrutinib versus Ven anti CD20 versus Ven alone versus ibrutinib
4: anti CD20. Pick one. Matt? For frontline for, front line for, for this, patient. this patient? Yeah, probably Venn Oben for this patient. Dr. Rai? I agree. Neil?
0: I'm good with that. Okay.
1: <laughs> I take Ben Open also. Yeah.
0: Okay. If you're going for Case party. three. Uh, Mr. C. Case three. Are we okay? All right. Mr. C. is a 49-year-old man who presents with a one-year history of CLL and now requires therapy for Rye Stage 3 disease and lymphadenopathy. His CLL profile demonstrates negative CD38, negative ZAP70, unmutated immunoglobulin gene, and a deletion 17P in 35% of the cells. Uh, What treatment recommendation do you recommend at this time? Dr. Brown?
1: So this is clearly driven by the deletion 17P for this patient. And in general, I think patients with TP53 malfunction are the ones who are likely to have the early transformation, early relapse with single-agent BTK inhibitors. So I would try very hard to get this patient on a combination clinical trial, ideally with a BTK inhibitor, a BCL2 inhibitor, if we had such a trial, and or potentially try to get it paid for, although I haven't tried that in a frontline setting.
0: Um, so. Conti?
3: It's a, again, I feel, a somewhat artificial case. Because if you had been fair to us, you would have said as to, within one year, this lady, this man, has gone from 13-gram, 14-gram hemoglobin to 9-something hemoglobin. Or it has been like that already, always. Because there are some people who believe that just near diagnosis, a person who is free of B symptoms and has 17P deletion, should not automatically be treated. But here we do not know. And in the course of one year from diagnosis, sufficient numbers of things are shown to us, which would render treatment justifiable. And if treatment is needed, I would go with the 17P deletion and go with the BTK inhibitor or BCR inhibitor. So in that case, the treatment choices are clear, but we don't know whether in the course of one year there has been a clear-cut worsening of the patient.
4: Matt? So, yeah, certainly if there were a trial option available with combination novel agents, that would be my preference. I think outside of that, if I had to treat this patient with standard of care, I think the decision for me is still between ibrutinib or Uh I have to say, so far, with the one year of time-limited therapy specifically in the 17P subset, I'm, I'm not impressed that we're going to have durable response there because the, you know there's been about 12% progression events in that arm of the study, And several of those have been patients with TP53 dysfunction. So, you know, we have longer-term follow-up with ibrutinib in frontline 17P, admittedly, in a pretty small cohort of patients from the NHLBI. But at least in that study, about three-quarters of patients are still progression-free at five years. And so this is a patient where I'd probably steer them toward ibrutinib. And then, you know, I think that... The, the second question there is a really tough one. We've probably all had patients in our clinic now who are in remission on brutinib with 17P and are kind of faced with this, this decision. Do they move on to transplant at this point because they're in a good remission, or do we wait until they start to progress and then try to do something else? We know that Venetoclax in, in that setting probably has about a 67% response rate, our best guess based on the prospective data. Uh, so that's pretty good, but that still means a third of the patients are not responding. And what do we do at that point uh, if we can't get them so into remission?
0: You jumped ahead, so you get Sorry. to pay the price. <laughs> All right. um, so this patient was, elected, was put on ibrutinib, actually remained on ibrutinib for five years, and actually obtained a very good response. All right. Do you send them now for an alginate transplant?
4: So I think I think that's the debate, and and uh, you know I, I, I have them usually meet with a transplanter and kind of learn about the process, and, and so that they can make an informed choice. I don't I don't make a strong recommendation to move to allo transplant, particularly given what's happening now with CAR T therapy and it's it's improving and, and I think probably is eventually headed toward an approval in CLL. So I might try to keep this patient going with ibrutinib, hoping that if they do progress, I could switch to venetoclax, and that if that didn't work, that CAR T might be an option at that point. Neil.
2: Yeah, I uh, I think those are wise comments. Uh, first of all, I do want to comment on something that you're showing a few times, and that is the prognostic markers. Mm-hmm. I might comment just briefly on those.
0: I don't know. Do I want to hear it? Probably not.
2: <laughs> but I'll say it. If you want me to, I'll say it. Otherwise, we'll do it off, off uh, offline. <laughs> but um, okay, never mind that. So I, uh, unlike Dr. Rye, I think I am getting the impression, although maybe uh, I'm overplaying this, that this is somebody who presented to you and rapidly progressed uh, hematologically, that the cytopenia has really changed. And, and you know, it's 49, and, uh, and having uh, unmutated IGHV and the dilution of 70p is all pretty bad news. So I am in agreement that we need to uh, get this individual to as negative a uh, leukemic status as possible. Um, I might, Given what we know now about the triple combinations that have come from MD Anderson, I would have been tempted to think about that. I do think the cars are going to move along pretty quickly. I was really impressed, although some people are skeptical, that the observations by Dave Maloney's group, where a brute nib underlying the cars generates a lot of nice responses. So if, if I had this 49 year old person, I was looking down the road thinking 10 year survivorship, I would have pro- probably gone, knowing what I know now, I might have gone triple and then thought about CARs pretty, pretty quickly after the uh, MRD-negative
0: status. So are you suggesting doing a CAR T-cell treatment at MRD?
2: Well, I'm assuming that – well, let me back because up. Because currently
0: we don't have a trial for that, uh, Well, and the insurance won't.
2: I'm assuming that we have CARs that are going to come along. So I'm being in – the. In, this is the ideal world. So we need to take advantage of the graft-versus-leukemia effect. This is one leukemia that's extremely responsive to GVL. And, uh, I mean, John Gribben showed us that a long time ago. And remember the donor lymphocyte infusions? Those used to be pretty dramatic. And I think the cars are going to be... So I'm being a bit idealistic and thinking, can I get this gentleman who's very young to a point where when the cars are ready, if if they weren't ready, uh, I maybe as, maybe I would be considering transplant if there was a match. A
0: so really, five years MRD-negative transplant match, you would go to I, allogeneic transplant? I think it
2: would be in the conversation,
1: yeah. Jen? So I would definitely have the conversation at the beginning around the initiation of therapy about the, you know, expectations in the setting of 17P and the risk of earlier relapse, and then we only know we have venetoclax after that, and there's CAR-T consolidation, there's ALC consolidation. You know, I think at this point, most people wouldn't choose to go rapidly to an aloe without seeing how things go after starting on their BTK inhibitor, which I would, f- if I couldn't get my combination, I would favor the BTK inhibitor rather than the VenOpen. Uh, after five years, is the patient really MRD negative? It's pretty unusual. On a so,
0: proteinib. what I'm really trying to stimulate a discussion about is really the idea that, you know, if you have a patient who's been out five years and is doing really well, do we think that that patient's risk for Richter's, though? is still as great as might be? I don't think so. I
1: was going to say I wouldn't send them at that point because I think they've somewhat passed the practical of early relapse, and so hopefully they'll be more salvageable when the time comes.
0: So that's ultimately the question is, you know, so this person's made it out five years. Do we think that maybe they're free and clear? Um, And if we're revisiting this patient now at year two, and they're having an excellent response, but it's year two, does that change your perspective? So does the tincture of time factor into your opinion?
1: It does definitely in my case.
0: Yep.
2: It's complicated. I, I we want we don't have information on the natural history for ibrutinib only. Even but,
1: except from the NHLBI study where there were several early transformations and then it's been more CLL progression later, but still seventy-five percent at five years. But very limited numbers, just a handful of patients.
2: And So we agree essentially on that. What I I guess I'm concerned about is if if we are subdividing, substratifying our patients in many ways. These prognostics, for example, we're doing things now we didn't do even four or five years ago. And the natural history for someone like this, where they're kind of a setup for some bad things, including clonal instability – I don't know about complex carry type in this person, if you study that either, but if that were positive, I'd be thinking potentially explosive. Uh, CLL cell, I think Tom Kipps coined this as a stealth cell. It likes to hide around and then come out when you least expect it with a new resistance mechanism. And he's only 49. Five years later, he's 54. That's pretty young to me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm not trying to be facetious and A conversation... Don't you think Jennifer would have to? No, absolutely. Even at the beginning, can we can we get you to a therapy which, to our knowledge, right now is the only curative therapy? I think that's you need to consider that. Right. No, absolutely.
1: But a lot of the patients, you know, they read some of the literature and they think that maybe. New things are coming. We already have several great drugs. Combinations are coming along. New things are coming on. They don't necessarily want to triage themselves early to, yeah, to so transplant. Sure. What
0: about the PCYC1117 study? There's a, a definite tail on the curve. So we're now out beyond five years. Um, I have two patients who are 17P deleted who haven't progressed or transformed, unlike everyone else who has progressed or transformed by now. You know, Do they deserve the same treatment considerations or have they declared themselves?
4: I mean, there, there is variety in 17P patients right? based on TP53 mutational status, the burden of, of 17P deletion. Occasionally, we'll see a patient who's got mutated IGHV and 17P, and those patients can do very well. You now, this patient worries me because they have unmutated IGHV and a fairly high percentage of deletion 17P at the time of initial therapy. We don't know the TP53 mutation status here, but assuming it's probably mutated as it is in most cases. So this is a patient who seems unlikely to have one of those durable benefits, but they might. And I think If they do, it does give me a little more confidence that they have some kind of perhaps even unmeasured, more indolent quality to their disease that gives me more confidence that we could potentially salvage them if they progressed. Dr. Rai?
3: Rich, we have great confidence in you as an expert in CLL. So by being the moderator, you should not exclude yourself from opinion because – it would make it more interesting and believable to the audience if it became you also agreeing or disagreeing. As far as this patient is concerned, as far as I'm concerned, all the right things have already been said. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you. So one last question before the end of the uh, session. Um, Mr. C is a 62-year-old man diagnosed with CLL in 2008 um, when he was found to have an elevated white blood count on routine CBC. At that time, no lymphadenopathy, anemia, thrombocytopenia, or symptomatology. Prognostic markers are negative for CD38, ZAP70. He is trisomy 12, and he has an unmutated immunoglobulin heavy chain gene. NGS demonstrated no mutations in NOTCH TP53 or SF3B1. Over the next, three, next seven years, he demonstrates a slowly progressive course characterized by a white blood count up to 140,000, hemoglobin 10.5, and platelets of 110,000, significant lymphadenopathy-prompting uh, treatment with the calibrutinib on trial. Uh, tolerated treatment well and demonstrated an excellent response, having achieved a hematologic and radiographic CR. Um, but, with a slightly persistent uh, bone marrow bi- uh, slight persistence of disease in bone marrow biopsy and a nadir ALC of three thousand at thirty six months uh, on treatment, he now demonstrates a rise in his absolute lymphocyte count to 5,500. flow cytometry confirms that these lymphocytes are CLL cells, and the repeat prognostic markers now demonstrate a notch one mutation uh, he is been observed for three more months, and his ALC has remained stable at approximately 6,000. The patient remains on a calibrutinib, given the absence of a a formal progression as per trial, but then demonstrates what is a significant um, formal progression with a rise in the ALC to 9,000, and has one to two centimeter lymphadenopathy throughout the abdomen and pelvis, um, requiring discontinuation of the nib. What do you want to do at this time? Dr. Brown?
1: Right. So the patient obviously has developed progressive disease on nib. If you were allowed to keep them on nib, I might have sat on it a bit longer, I have to say. It would be nice if we had the ability to test for BTK or PLC gamma 2 mutations, but we don't always have that ability, but it would be likely that the patient may have such a mutation, probably 75 or 80% likely. And so in the absence of a protocol, venetoclax would be the likely treatment of choice based on the data we have for about a 65% response rate in the post-BTK progressor setting. CR rate is lower, though, at about 9 10%. It, with trials of the next-generation BTK inhibitors, I've, I've been often doing that.
0: So are you suggesting that we initiate therapy at this point in time? Relapse patient, uh, low tumor burden, formally has progressed on a BTK inhibitor, um, and has a notch inhibitor. Do we watch and wait as per standard, or do we treat early?
1: Well, right. So first of all, I would have actually kept the calibrutinib on longer is what I might have done, although... It's easier, a little easier with a Brutinib, especially if you know they have a BTK mutation, because a Brutinib still has some activity against the BTK mutation, where a Calabrutinib has no activity against the BTK mutation. Now, so if you're forced to stop, that's a very difficult situation, because in the setting of progressive disease, when you have to stop a BTK inhibitor, you can sometimes have massive flare. And so that is a concern. But none here. In this patient There was no flare.
0: All right. Oh, okay. then I would sit on it yeah. and I'd just watch. Even with the notch mutation?
1: Yeah, Notch mutations are a watch and worry situation for me. I don't think that we know that we have any intervention that changes their natural history, so it wouldn't change.
0: Neil?
2: Yeah, I, I think I would watch as well. I don't feel a compelling reason to treat this
0: gentleman. Uh,
2: I am a little concerned about the notch, and now is this new at lymph? Is, this is new adenopathy?
0: New adenopathy. Was not there before. Not there before a patient achieved a radiographic CR. And the notch is also new, so this is clonal yeah, so, evolution.
2: So it's very worrisome, and I'd be watching this person pretty carefully. I guess I'd also be thinking either ultimately very aggressive CLL or maybe even a Richter's ultimately just because of the genetic milieu.
0: So how would you watch this patient?
2: Well, I guess there's no standard protocol unless I'm told otherwise, but I, given the new lymphadenopathy in the abdomen and the, in the pelvis and the notch, I might be thinking of a more regular... CTs. How frequently? (laughs) Uh, Not that frequently. I assume I'd be doing them every three to six months for a while. And if it was two consecutive intervals where I did not see significant changes, I probably would be happier for the patient and still watch.
0: Dr. Rye.
3: This is an interesting situation. As Sylvia said in response to my question that discovery of notch one is interesting but it is not decisive therapeutic intervention suggesting. So this person I would be cautious about is stopping a Kyle because as Jen suggests that uh, these people can blow up and, and you may not be able to revert that disease. So before you stop a cal, you have to be sure that even though there is relatively non-bulky disease present or appearing, but you ought to be ready for more intensive therapeutic intervention. And if you look for BTK mutation for a Cal failure and you find it, then you are on a stronger ground to change to venetoclax.
4: Matt? Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. I mean, specifically to to Neil's point, I think that I would also get some serial imaging here. Not too frequently. It would sort of depend on how the patient was doing otherwise from the perspective of the blood counts and symptomatology. But, you know, probably have a very low threshold here to get a PET CT scan if the patient had a rising LDH or developed any hint of B symptoms because with the notch mutation, I'm more worried about Richter syndrome here. Uh, And then, you know, in terms of if this does end up being progressive CLL that requires therapy, uh, a good trial candidate here because they're coming off a BTK inhibitor but not having explosive disease, so you have time to kind of line up, line up a trial. Venetoclax combination trials I think are good ones to consider for a patient like this. We currently have a trial of Duvalisib, the PI3 kinase inhibitor, with venetoclax. Uh, there's other studies going on with Umbalisib and Ublituximab and venetoclax. So that, that's the type of study that I, I might be looking for for this type of patient.
0: So, But just to sum up that, this patient now has a new notch and doesn't have an IWCL indication for treatment. Do you watch or wait, or do you treat? Yeah, I watch and wait. You watch and wait. Yep. Okay, and you're watching wait by serial CT scans?
4: Well, serial visits, you know, this might even be a patient I'm seeing monthly at this point, checking blood counts, physical exam, and then maybe a CAT scan in three to six months, or a PET scan if there's any hint of Richter's. Okay. Well, so whatever, uh,
3: uh has been said about CT scan. I I go by physical examination and how the patient feels rather than a scheduled rigid CT, CT pet, and we tend to be starting to do the scans and PET scans a little more frequently. This kind of patient is one of those who makes you fall in the trap of overdoing. Same story with bone marrow examination. Only if our therapy and the decision will change by whether you find X or Y with the bone marrow biopsy so i think that by relegating those tests we are going under the umbrella of delaying the decision
0: so i'm going to open my i'm going to address conti's comment and open myself up to criticism and tell you what i would do in this situation which is given the the new notch mutation and the clonal evolution and the fact that this person progressed on BTK inhibitor therapy, which I really believe are sort of all the markers of a bad case, and this being a relapsed patient, I would initiate treatment with venetoclax at this time.
4: Any comments on that? I agree. I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I I think we we don't know what the right answer is, but there's certainly no evidence that starting venetoclax early is going to be beneficial, just as there's no evidence that waiting is going to be beneficial. So I don't know.
1: You could even monitor the allele fraction of the notch mutation over time before treatment and just to get a sense of whether that's changing.
0: So, the, the two things I just want to point out. One is, um, you know, of course, venetoclax is a heck of a lot easier and safer to use with a low tumor burden. So, sometimes I wonder if we set ourselves up for a, a difficult endeavor by waiting until these patients have large volumes of disease. And two, um, you know, had this been a notch mutation present at diagnosis, and now the patient five years later had it again at progression. You know, it's still this ultimate question about why only half the notch mutated patients progress. And so one of the questions I always have in the back of my mind is once again, if this had been a person who's declared themselves as not being the type to develop a Richter's, whether or not that should change management. So that's actually the important question I think we may
4: have to confront going forward. To your, to, your, to your first point, though, I think that's the argument for getting the interval CAT scan. You know, in contrast with Conti, I mean, I think like, it, you know, with Venetoclax specifically, it does really seem like with the bulky nodes there's a couple of problems. One is the risk of TLS, but the other is that particularly those patients with very bulky disease over 10 centimeters do not have as, as good of a response in terms of depth of response, and that translates into a shorter progression-free survival. So I think if you got this CT scan three to six months later and it showed four to five centimeter lymph nodes, that patient may have a better outcome with venetoclax rather than waiting until there's enough progression on exam that the nodes are 10 centimeters at that point.
0: But I would have given the treatment at the one to two centimeter mark and not even have needed that.
1: But we don't have any evidence that you'll selectively eliminate the notch clone or even that you'll eliminate it together with the other clones. You may actually select it and enrich it.
0: But, you know, the question is venetoclax now versus venetoclax later wouldn't impact upon that either, Right.
1: Well, unless the other microenvironmental lower-risk clones are inhibiting the space the notch clone can fill, and then by clearing them out, you make more space for the adverse clone, like an additional clonal selection process.
0: We have a question? About um, the stopping the um, uh, ibrutinib or a calibrutinib. I had a patient who had bad pneumonia, and... Uh, had to be hospitalized uh, multiple of times because of pneumonia, and uh, I'm, I was really worried about what is the safest duration of interrupting the treatment uh, and how to monitor him. And the second question is in patients where a decision is made to switch to finitoclax and they are barely held with um, uh, um what is the recommendation of the switching? Should they be in a combination until you wrap up the dose to the therapeutic dose and then stop the uh, ibrutinib. So I, I tried to duck the second question by having this patient on a clinical trial where there couldn't be a question of continuing the, the BTK inhibitor. Um, but who wants to address the first question?
4: I, I can start, I guess. And, you know, I think the first question, to me, it depends a lot on where the patient is in their disease course. Is this a patient who just started on abrutinib a month ago and still has a big disease burden and, and you know, there... I'm anxious about holding it. You know, I, I, I may still hold it during an infection, but I'm trying to get them back on as, as quickly and safely as I can. You know, if it's a patient who's been on abrutinib for two years and is in a very deep partial remission and, and their blood counts are okay, you know, there I'm comfortable holding the abrutinib for longer. Uh, I've had patients where I've had to take them off abrutinib permanently for atrial fibrillation, for example, uh, and those are patients who sometimes can actually do very well and stay in a partial remission for months or even a couple of years. So I think it depends on where the patient is in their course. All right, second question. Uh, Rick, for one of
5: the the few times I agree with you, but that's neither here nor there. I do take exception, though, on doing serial CAT scans. You know, in, in the lymphoma world, we found out that doing serial CAT scans after a patient was in remission really didn't pay. And in those patients who have follicular lymphoma, we do them less and less frequently because we know you do a PET scan at one certain point. The next day, the patient could have... A relapse, or in this case, would have transformation. What do you gain by doing all of these frequent serial uh, CAT scans? Do you have any, or PET scans more importantly? Do you have any data that the early application of treatment is going to make an iota of difference before the patient becomes symptomatic, or before the LDH rises, or before the patient tells you he's sick?
2: There is no data. Uh, there is a great suspicion that. Um, Early diagnosis of Richter's is probably very different, than at least there would be in my mind, than following most lymphoma patients, but I'm not a lymphoma expert. I'm also influenced a lot in my patient cohort by how smart these patients are. And uh, I have to say, Mort, to a certain extent, I am confronted with, what are you going to do about this new node, and how are you going to take care of me? And if I tell them physical exam, I have had patients respond well. So you mean you can tell what's going on in my belly. So there is a little bit of that conversation going on. I I would have to say, unfortunately, not well, fortunately, Richter's is rare. And uh, it's a devil to deal with, especially if they're clonally related. So our practice is more inclined to try to pick it up early and to get a patient on treatment early. But you're right, there is no solid evidence that earlier treatment makes a difference. The only thing I would argue about is I'd rather start treating them with tough therapies while they're fitter, which to me means earlier. Uh, Admittedly, there aren't a lot of clinical trials. We, We desperately need, I think, a national... Richter's organization. With uh, it's a rare disease, but we need to come together and figure out how to uh, to diagnose. When should we? You know how how should we be following up the high risk patients, and when should we be initiating therapy? Um, You know, uh, can we? Does picking it up early make a difference? We don't know those. Those are critical questions in my mind.
5: Let me challenge you even further. If you, how many patients do you get that come down with Richter's? who aren't symptomatic. In other words, we found that when you relapse from large cell lymphoma, these patients are usually symptomatic. The patient tells you something or you pick it up and, the, and yeah. we don't find the disease that much earlier. And so what I'm wondering is why do a on up? how often would you do these PET scans, Neil?
2: Not very often, no.
5: I'm glad I convinced
2: you. <laughs> I, I was only proposing to... Well, I, I mean, I, I think a compromise between what Dr. Rise what Conte said, and what I said, you know, I wouldn't be doing every three months. I think physical exams are absolutely important, and if I started, if in this patient, case number four, uh, if there was now a node palpable in the neck that might spur me on to doing uh, imaging, uh, You could you could marry the two. I don't think there's a As Matt was saying, I don't think there's a perfect plan here, but I I think imaging comes into play somewhere, and I don't know that it would be when they're floridly ill. I I would think it might be better to do
3: it earlier. All right. With that, I'm going to thank the members of the, the panel.